Nubank is a popular bank that is based in Brazil. Nubank has more than 20 million customers and has accumulated a high volume of data over the six years since it has started. Mobile computing and cloud computing have given rise to challenger banks, such as Nubank, that operate more like software companies. When a software company reaches the size that Nubank is at today, it needs a data platform. A data platform is a collection of different technologies that move data into different storage formats and applications, so that different members of an organization can access that data. New data often enters an organization through an OLTP database, the transactional database, which supports user transactions. And that transactional data is copied into a data lake, which provides cheap bulk storage. From the data lake, the data is moved into a data warehouse system for fast access. And along the way, tools like Kafka, Spark, and S3 are used to implement the needs of the data platform. And that's kind of a reductive description, because data platform architecture is not an exact science, and different companies build their data platforms based on their own unique requirements. Previous shows have covered the data infrastructure companies like Lyft and Uber and Facebook. And today's show is another case study in data infrastructure with a modern bank. In a previous episode a few years ago, we covered the core engineering of Nubank. In today's show, we cover the data infrastructure of Nubank with Sujith Nair. He joins the show to talk about the data infrastructure of the company and what he's working on. If you enjoy the show, you can find all of our past episodes about data infrastructure by going to softwaredaily.com. You can search for the technologies or the companies mentioned. And also, if there's a subject that you want to hear covered that you have not heard in a previous episode, you can feel free to leave a comment on this episode or send us a tweet at software underscore daily with your recommendations. If you don't love your job, it's hard to wake up in the morning with a feeling of excitement. Of course, finding a new job is a painful process. There's a lot of friction. And that's where Scene by Indeed comes in. Scene puts tech candidates in front of thousands of companies like Grubhub, Capital One, and PayPal across more than 90 cities. Just create your profile from your resume and they'll match you to the right roles based on your needs. Every scene candidate also gets free access to technical career coaching, resume reviews, mock interviews, and even salary negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join today and get a free resume review when you go to bscene.com slash daily. That's B-E-S-E-E-N dot com slash daily. Scene by Indeed is a tech-focused matching platform. And the access to resume reviews, mock interviews, and salary negotiation tips can be really helpful to somebody who has not looked for a job for a while, or even somebody who has been looking for a job but just hasn't really considered these things, like practicing before an interview or learning to negotiate a salary. You might be worth a lot more than you realize. If you're ready for a new job, you're ready for Seen by Indeed. Join today and get a free resume review when you go to bscene.com slash daily, B-E-S-E-E-N.com slash D-A-I-L-Y. Thank you to Scene by Indeed. Sujith Nair, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. 
We're going to talk today about data engineering in the company that you work at, which is NewBank. And NewBank is a thriving bank. It's commonly referred to as a challenger bank, so it's a newer bank. And I want to start by just talking about what NewBank is so we can get an understanding of the high-level application, and then we can get into the data engineering side of things. So could you just give an overview for what the NewBank business is? Sure. So when NewBank started, it started out as a credit card issuer, a mobile app-based credit card issuer. So that was the initial business model to provide credit cards to people in Brazil. And over time, the products we offer to customers has, we have moved on from credit cards to savings accounts and other such financial products. And now we provide these services to customers in the countries of Brazil and Mexico. And we're going to need to talk in terms of both OLTP and OLAP transactions in the episode today, because when you're talking about data engineering, there is usually analytic processing that you're doing. And you're doing these large-scale analytic processes over large data sets. But when these data sets are created, they're typically created from individual transactions. So in the case of NewBank, maybe a customer makes a purchase or a customer transfers money from one bank account to another, or a customer gets a credit card. Can you give an overview of some prototypical transactions, the user transactions that are going on across the NewBank platform? So like you said, you know, every transaction, every purchase that a customer makes is registered as a transaction within the new bank system. In addition, money transfers or bill payments, these are different uses which a customer makes of the new bank card in general. And each of these, you know, makes its way into the new bank system as event, I would say, as a record. Yeah. And the data after it's turned into transactional records, eventually it's going to be processed in other ways over analytic systems. And when we talk about the analytic processing, that's going to be a a very complicated system of things like Kafka and Spark. So before we get there, let's talk a bit about the data infrastructure of the transactional processing. So When a user actually makes a purchase and that purchase is written to your database, I assume that the user is interacting with some client, like a mobile client or just their credit card, and the transaction eventually hits NewBank's services architecture, and then the service is going to write that data to a transactional database. What do you use for a transactional database? So, you know, every new bank as a whole is structured as the services which we provide, the user-facing services or the internal systems. They are structured as microservices. So across new bank engineering, we have a system of like writing microservices in Clojure. And each of these microservices are backed by a Datomic database. So the transactional database that we use is Datomic. For people who are unaware of Datomic as such, Datomic is an immutable append-only database. You can think of it as Git for your database. 
in that sense, uh, the, the records which are datomic, the log is a first class construct. You can imagine datomic, the transaction stored in datomic as being appended to a log. And then, you know, of when users query it, you can query against a history of it. You can do time travel. And that is how the transactional records are stored. The usage of datomic is not something that's common. It's not necessarily uncommon. I mean, there's plenty of people who love datomic. They love this idea of having an append-only database that allows you to go back in time and see the history of a single database entry. But in most databases, you have something called a write-ahead log. Like in a SQL database, you have a transaction history. You can implicitly go back in time because of the write-ahead log in a transactional database. Why do you need the log as a first-class citizen in your transactional database? I suppose historically the reason, I mean, you know, as a financial institution, you know, audit trails and, you know, being like, you know, being able to reason about things in the past is something that the new bank engineering cared from the start. And although you do mention that other relational databases do provide the construct of a right ahead log, these are usually, I would say, you know, a secondary constructs in which, you know, you have to work out mechanisms to extract value from it. Within Datomic, you do not, because it is structured as a log, you know, you do not have to come up with extensive change data capture mechanisms to extract value from the log itself. Yeah, I think that would be the reason why we prefer Datomic. If I'm keeping all of the data over the entire history of my entire application, does that get to be so much data that it's going to cost me a lot of money or be hard to maintain? Well, our experience suggests that it is not the case. And particularly in the modern era of cheap cloud storage, we have that has not been the problem at all for us. Datomic as such, you know, there are other limitations to Datomic in the sense that because it is an append-only database, you know, there are certain limitations to the scale that it can handle. So, well, that those are the limitations that uh, we have faced, but uh, as such storage or having to deal with um, the cost of that storage has not been much of an issue. So we've touched on the transactional data store at this point, the fact that you use Datomic to store things like user data and transaction data and financial data. Now we can start to talk about the data platform. What are the requirements of your data platform? The need for or the requirements of the data platform, I would say, well, it comes from the fact that NewBank as such is structured as, uh, you know, the it started with microservices, each of the user-facing features or the internal accounting system. All of these are catered to by microservices. So the need to stitch together data from these different data sources, these different databases, if you will, uh, was always there. And in addition, as a financial institution, we also have access to third-party data sources, data vendors who provide us uh, data sets. 
the need to stitch together data from these disparate sources and to provide a platform for analysis. That is what I would say is the need or the requirement of the new bank data platform. When I think about the users of a data platform, I think broadly of two kinds of people. One kind of person is the interactive data analyst. So this person is oftentimes referred to as a data analyst or a data scientist. This is a person who might be interacting with a BI tool like Tableau or Looker, or maybe they're putting stuff into an Excel spreadsheet and they're building models. And then you have the maybe machine learning data scientist or the machine learning engineer or the data engineer. And these are the kinds of people that are doing more engineering work. They're transforming data from an OLTP system like Datomic. Maybe they're moving it into a data warehousing system so that they can build aggregations. Maybe they want to create nightly reports and they want to do more technical work that they automate. So they want to have these reports be automated or they want to create aggregations of transactions and send them throughout the company. Tell me about the breakdown of the different kinds of users of your data platform. Sure. So as you alluded to, there are different user personas which make use of the analytical environment, the data platform. And to name a few, I would say there are data analysts, there are business analysts, financial analysts, data scientists, and machine learning engineers. These are all the different internal users that the data platform caters to. To answer your question as to how do we actually cater to this uh, wide variety of uh, user personas, well, I would say from the onset, uh, we were clear that to cater to such a wide variety of users and their needs and to scale the platform to the levels that we envisioned, the data transformation had to be devolved and democratized to the user. So in a sense, what I'm saying is they would define the data transformations they require. So to give you a brief view of the architecture of how we do it, I would say that there, for a data analyst, business analyst kind of users, we have a data warehouse hosted on Google uh, BigQuery. But to the more, I would say, there is the transformation of transactional data and you know there is the process of loading that into a data warehouse but uh, you know the approach that we have taken as a platform is to like you know is to let the users decide what go what flows through our data lake and what eventually gets uh, stored into the data warehouse maybe i should also talk a bit about the architecture of the data platform in general so, like I said, we, we were clear from the very beginning that data transformations have to be devolved and, you know, democratized to the users. So, we, to achieve this, we separate the concerns of behavior, state, and performance. Behavior, or the transformation logic, or how data is transformed from one form to another, is user-contributed. But incorrect behavior or buggy transformation or any such thing will any such buggy code will not lead to an inconsistent 
state of the data lake per se. So in that sense, I would like to also talk briefly about the architecture of the data lake, maybe. Please do. Yeah. So the way we have structured the data lake, I would say, is the core primitive of the data lake is a DAG of functions called OPS, as in directed acyclic graph of OPS. OPS stands for operations. So an OP is a decorated Scala function that consumes uh, Spark data frames and produces Spark data frames. So these OPS are contributed to the platform by the users of the system, aforementioned data analysts, business analysts, machine learning engineers, and others. These OPS are deterministic and idempotent. So, so for a given input of uh, data frames, if you will, they always output the same data frames. So what are the benefits of structuring the data transformations within the data lake as uh, idempotent ops? So the biggest benefit, the biggest advantage of this is that such idempotent ops are very conducive to unit testing. The users who contribute ops to the system can be very sure of the correctness of their ops. Also, to tie back to the initial mention of a separation between state, behavior, and performance, the users can focus on contributing behavior to the data lake, while the data infrastructure team focuses exclusively on the problems of uh, performance and essential state. You've given us a lot of context there. And I'd like to explore a lot of the things that you, you talked about and zoom in on them. And I want to start with this term data frame. Can you give an explanation for what a data frame is? Sure. I mean, in general, I mean, not to talk about Spark particularly, but in general, a data frame can be viewed in a very relational sense, a table. You know, you can think of a data frame as being structured as multiple columns and rows. That's how you would think of a or visualize a data frame as a relational table. And the idea of a data frame, we create these because we're taking a subset of the data from our data lake, right? And like the data in the data lake, it could be unstructured data. It could be maybe some of it's structured. Maybe we're taking different sources from our data lake and pulling it together into relational format. And that is the, the data frame. Am, am I understanding it correctly? Right. So, you know, assuming that, you know, your initial source of data is unstructured or semi-structured, by the time it ends up in the data lake in the form of an op or a data frame, it is already in the form of, has already assumed some structure, some relational structure. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit. First of all, so I guess we kind of skipped the data lake idea. So, you know, this data gets written to transactions, or this transactional data gets written to the OLTP database, the Datomic database in your case. What kind of data is getting put into your data lake? How does data make its way into your data lake? Sure. So data ingestion into the data platform, there are many sources, multiple types of sources. Let's talk about how data from the production databases uh, makes its way into the data lake. 
So like I said, each of our production microservices is backed by a Datomic database. And as I alluded to before, since the log is a first-class construct in it, we do not need extensive change data capture mechanisms to capture logs from it. So a data platform service connects to every production Datomic instance, extracts uh, logs from it at regular intervals, and stores it as Avro files on S3. These Avro files are read into Spark during the the batch execution of the ops, I would say. So Avro files, that's a format that's like similar to Parquet, right? It's like a, a file format that's useful for storing large volumes of data? Yeah, I wouldn't call it similar to Parquet because uh, Parquet is a columnar file format. In general, is more suitable for workloads where you are performing full table scans or you know reading entire files in that sense. In Parquet, the, the more suitable workload is to, you know, the more analytical kind of workloads wherein you are only scanning through a certain subset of the columns. Mm. Tell me more about the, the choice of the Avro file format for your data lake. I wouldn't say Avro is the file format of source for the entire data lake, but the initial ingestion, at the ingestion stage, that is where we use Avro. The preference for Avro at that stage is because, you know, when the batch execution of Spark happens over the, this ingested data, it usually happens via full table scans. And for such workloads, Avro has a better performance. And that's why we have Avro at that stage. But if you were to think of, well, one point that I missed out on when describing the data lake, you know, these ops, they're structured as a directed acyclic graph, right? So at the very beginning of it, the data is in the format of Avro, it's read into uh, Spark and processed, but, you know, subsequent outputs are stored as Parquet on S3. Okay. So the data that's actually getting put into the data lake, the first dump of transactional data, is it is it just the like copies of the Datomic transactional database, or are we talking about some different data sources other than the transactional database? Uh, so it is not a direct copy. There is a transformation needed in the sense that you know Datomic, like I said, it stores things in a log form, in a long form format, you know, which needs to be kind of pivoted into materialized views to make uh, sense in the data lake. So of course there is that transformation. So I wouldn't call it a simple dump of data, but having said that, you know, this is not the only source of data into the data lake. Other sources would be, so there is a form of streaming ingestion into the data lake. So microservices can stream data into the analytical environment by publishing them as uh, messages via Kafka. So a service, a data platform service, again, consumes these messages from Kafka, accumulates the data from messages in batches, and stores them, again, as Avro files on S3. Also, other data sources that I can think of are, as, as I uh, mentioned before, as a financial institution, we have access to third-party data sets, uh, which are hosted on S3, and which are, again, accessible in this DAG of Spark jobs. 
Today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. StrongDM is a system for managing and monitoring access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters. You already treat infrastructure as code. StrongDM lets you do the same with access. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access. It's one click to onboard and one click to terminate. Instantly pull people in and out of roles. Admins get full auditability into anything that anyone does. When they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed, it's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by admins at Greenhouse, Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, and SoFi Control Access. Start your free 14-day trial of StrongDM by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash strongdm. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash strongdm. Thank you to StrongDM for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. You're talking about the different data sources that are getting put into the data lake. Just to give a little bit more color there to make sure I understand this correctly, you have one kind of data source, which is just your transactional database, and you have to do some kinds of transformations on that data to put it into the Avro format so that it's more easily consumable by Spark jobs in the future. You also have data that is being consumed from Kafka. This is like exhaust data from your microservices. Your Maybe your microservices are producing, I don't know, logging data or just maybe certain exception kind of data, but your microservices are generated some kind of data that's getting pushed into Kafka, and then off of Kafka, it's getting transformed into other files that can be stored in the data lake. And then you also have third-party data sources. Maybe you have a daily dump of you know, tax information or uh, credit card rates or, you know, just different kinds of third-party data sources that might need to be written into the data lake because you have a variety of consumers that might want to do interesting data engineering work based off of those third-party data sources. Correct. Okay, cool. Now, as we talk about working off of that data lake, you know, coming back to this data frame idea, What is the process of taking data from a data lake, in Nubank's case, and making practical use of it? Sure. So, again, it depends on the the user. I mean, what kind of use to the data the user wants to do, what kind of uh, transformations they want to do. Let's assume that you want to define certain joins on certain data sets and then, you know, certain transformations on some data sets. So you would define, let's say, an op. Like I said, these ops are uh, just uh, decorated Scala functions. And, you know, you within these uh, Scala functions, you are more or less writing simple Spark SQL transformations of how these different data frames or output of ops should be transformed into something else. And then you can annotate them to say that, okay, I need this data to flow into the data warehouse for further analysis. Or you can annotate it to say that this needs to be loaded into a DynamoDB table so that you know it can be fed back into the production 
environment where microservices exist or you want it, it to be well you know sent as kafka messages into certain topics so that downstream consumers of it uh, which could be other services they can process it so these are the different ways in which data can flow out of the analytical environment that term op that you've described a few times so when you're talking about taking the data out of its raw data lake format and then transforming it into something more useful you know i think you're using the term data frame and op somewhat interchangeably i guess you're saying that the idea of an op is a structured a table like format that is easier to work with for a data analyst or a data scientist because it is in a relational format. Is, it, is that accurate? And that's why you're saving it back to the data lake. Yeah. So to clarify the difference between an op and a data frame, I would say an op is basically a function, function which defines a transformation. So you can assume that it takes in some inputs, which could be data frames. So the op is the function itself, and that you can visualize the data frame as being the output of that op. I see. Okay. And so it's useful to save these kinds of ops because, you know, if you have these kinds of ops defined, you could chain them together and create uh, meaningful calculations that you could reproduce on a daily basis, on an ad hoc basis. You could reproduce them in all kinds of applications. Yes, that's exactly the idea. Interesting. And from our correspondence, I think that what you're describing here is inspired some by Maxime Buchemin's idea of functional data engineering. Can you elaborate on that term? Yeah. So the idea of, well, you know, I would give you a premise of, you know, why the ideas of uh, functional programming paradigm is needed in the first place. So, you know, in general, data engineering elsewhere in many places, I would say, you know, the data engineering workflows or data engineering jobs as such, it is very difficult to test. You know, it is not a norm, I would say. So, you know, as this domain of uh, software engineering has matured, you know, many people have questioned or like, you know, they have spent some thought on like how to uh, introduce, uh, you know, testability and reproducibility into data engineering workflows. So Maxime Buchemin's post alluding to that fact, how can we structure data engineering workflows in a form which makes it easier for users to make it testable and reproducible. Well said. I mean, the idea of testable and reproducible data engineering is something that's come up in in some of my conversations with other data engineering people. There's a show we're doing in the near future about Great Expectations, which is, a, a I think, a tool for essentially doing unit testing on data sets and data engineering workflows. And so I, I understand that this is pressing pressing issue. But, you know, I think it's it's worth applying this functional data engineering concept to what we have discussed in practice so far. So can you tell me how functional data engineering applies to this infrastructure of ops and data frames that we've been discussing? Sure. So you can think of the output of these ops, like I said, the, the data frames as, you know, being each op can be visualized as mapping to a partitioned table, if you will. And each execution of an op 
can be visualized as um, pointing to a single partition in a table. So let's say over multiple executions, what we are doing is essentially adding new partitions to the table, each of these op. Like to maintain the, like, you know, to kind of borrow the idea of uh, functional programming into the data world, what functional programming essentially, you know, works with is the idea of pure functions so that given the same set of inputs, it would always give the same output. And, you know, there is no mutable state in the sense there is no global mutable state, which makes, you know, things easier to reason about, easier to test. Etc. Now, if you were to borrow that idea into data engineering, you would say that you know when you execute an op, you are basically writing a new, adding a new partition into a table. And if you are rerunning an op within the same execution, it would require you to kind of overwrite the same partition so that you know there is never an inconsistent state as such. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I want to come back to what you've said about the idea of an op or the idea of a what you've said is is basically a functional operation that will produce a data frame. How are you saving those operations and sharing them throughout the organization so that different people across the organization can make use of those different operations? Sure. So, you know, the output of each op is stored into S3, but however, a central catalog service, if you will, keeps track of the output path of like, you know, where is this the output of this particular execution of an op stored in S3. So let us say that, you know, each batch execution of this DAG is tracked within a single transaction, let's say a single transaction of transformation. So whenever an op execution is done, you know, it stores that information in the catalog service that, you know, the output of this op is stored in a particular S3 path and the, this is its schema, etc. And, you know, this concept of the central catalog service is also important to understand how we model the the aforementioned overwriting of partitions because you know when people talk about overwriting we do not actually need to perform a physical overwrite because overwrites can be modeled as uh, free metadata operations in this central catalog service and once uh, this this is stored and the central catalog service has access to the output of a particular op you know, other services can talk to this catalog service and say, you know, I need the output of a certain op for a certain day and then access the records. And to understand also this output is further loaded into some of them are loaded into a data warehouse. And that is also another way that people can access this data. It, this is coming into a clearer picture now because if you have this system where there are a multitude of different phases in this data pipeline, you can assign different phases in this data pipeline to different kinds of programmers. So at this point, you've defined the ingest system, the process by which data that is generated from the transactions 
are ingested into the data lake. They're transformed into a file format that's easier for data engineers to consume. You've defined a process by which data engineers can create these functions that can run over your data lake and create data frames, consumable sets of data that could be written to S3 on a periodic basis. And then now you've basically led us up to a point in which the data has been munged into a format that is in a table that could be consumed by a semi-technical or a less technical user, a data analyst or a data scientist or somebody doing machine learning. So if I understand correctly, you've defined so far the data pipeline that leads to basically a set of tables that are more easily consumable by a wide range of data users. Yes, correct. Great. So once the data is in S3 in a tabular format, in a data frame format, and I think you mentioned that there's you have a cataloging service that is going to enumerate those different data sets. Take me into the life of a data scientist or a technical analyst that is consuming this tabular format at the end. Sure. So assuming that they have different workflows, let's start with a data analyst. Let's say a data analyst is, well, requires to, he or she works on certain dashboards, which uh, uh, rely on certain data sets to be computed every day. If these dashboards rely on data, which is stored in the data warehouse, well, we have a BI tool called Looker, which is built, uh, you know, which sits on top of the warehouse. And of course, that those dashboards are refreshed every time new la- uh, data is loaded into the data warehouse. Uh, you know, now assuming that you know the the user is not a passive consumer of data, but you know, wants to define certain transformations, they would just go ahead and define these uh, simple ops and contribute it, it to the, into the repository. And you know, from that point onwards, they would have access to these data loaded repeated in a repeated fashion into the data warehouse. Now to talk about, let's say a data scientist. Now, you know, like I said, this platform is about solving data engineering workflows. And as such, I would not say that it solves all the problems which uh, data scientists would face in the course of their normal work. But of course, you know, a large part of the, of the work of a data scientist involves data engineering work, such as, you know, training some features or like, you know, scoring data set, scoring their model with new data, etc. To So, you know, e- each of these functions can again be modeled as an op. So let's, uh, let's assume you are trying to train some features and you're trying to like, you know, kind of coerce data into a certain form so that it can be fed into your machine learning models. So, you know, that would be defined as an op in the data lake. And that data would then be available, like, you know, uh, for your machine learning models. And then once your models are uh, defined, the, the scoring aspect of it can, again, work within the same DAG of operations. Now, I'd like to go a little bit deeper into the different roles that you have that are 
consuming these end data sets, like the looker analyst, for example, or the machine learning engineer who's building models. Let's first talk specifically about that data analyst, the, the kind of person that is using looker and building dashboards or consuming dashboards. Do you have an example use case? What might this person be doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, you know, depending on the the particular team this analyst belongs to, they could be tracking different things as in, you know, very simplistically as to the number of credit cards issued in a particular uh, month or day or the number of accounts opened, you know, or other uh, metrics such as, uh, I mean, I would be at a loss to list out the entire set of use cases because there are far too many of them. Right. But... I think it's worth pointing out that this conversation is going to give people context for just how much data engineering work needs to go on behind the scenes in order to generate these kinds of dashboards. I mean, there may be data scientists out there who they come into work every day and they look at these dashboards and they have no idea how these dashboards are making their way to their desks, but it is in fact a, a complex series of steps that need to take place in order to actually have this data hit their dashboard. And then certainly if they're if they're doing some things that are more dynamic, like if they want to use Looker to to generate custom reports, custom ad hoc reports, then they need to have these data sets that are easily consumable by Looker. And that's that's what we described in the data frame generation process. Right. And in general, I would say, you know, it is for the better that, you know, such complexity is masked from the users, the end users. And, you know, typically we we would very much like for them to never, you know, having to know about like, you know, it is only when, you know, our, well, daily execution bad jobs fail that they would be like, oh, this data did not arrive or this did not refresh. You know, a general sense, we would like for them to not be even aware of that, you know, such a thing is happening under the hood. That would be the ideal case. We should actually discuss some more of the infrastructure usage. And you mentioned the use of BigQuery near the beginning of this show. And we haven't really talked about how you use BigQuery and what BigQuery is. Could you explain what BigQuery is and describe how it fits into your workflows at NewBank? Sure. So BigQuery is a managed data warehousing solution by Google. So how it fits into the this infrastructure we have at NewBank is that, like I said, some of these ops definitions can be annotated that it flow downstream into the data warehouse. So you can think of the data that we have in the data warehouse as a set of curated data, which flows out of the data lake, you know, which is more or less in the final form that data analyst or a financial analyst would like to consume. And that data is loaded. That is the kind of data which is loaded into BigQuery and then accessible via Looker or even the BigQuery console to the user. Now, how does the usage of that data compare to what we were describing with the process of munging through this data and generating data frames that get written to S3? So there are a set of power users within the system who are actively 
defining ops, kind of defining the data transformations which they need and, you know, final form they need their data to be in. But, you know, if you leave out this set of uh, power users, a lot of the our users tend to be, you know, people who are code averse and they need, uh, they still need access to data because, you know, to take an example, a financial analyst needs to compute some metrics which tell them about the health of the company, the health of certain businesses, etc. I mean, they have the entire complexity of financial regulations and uh, bureaucracy to deal with. And for them, dealing with the complexity of code or dealing with the complexity of defining these transformations may not be the best use of their time. So these are the users who would rely more on a BigQuery or Looker to kind of uh, access their data, analyze it, or even visualize them, yes. Today's episode is sponsored by Datadog, a modern full-stack monitoring platform for cloud infrastructure, applications, logs, and metrics all in one place. From their recent report on serverless adoption and trends, Datadog found half of their customer base using EC2s have now adopted AWS Lambda. They've examined real-world serverless usage by thousands of companies running millions of distinct serverless functions and found half of Lambda invocations run for less than 800 milliseconds. You can easily monitor all your serverless functions in one place and generate serverless metrics straight from Datadog. Check it out yourself by signing up for a free 14-day trial and get a free t-shirt at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog t-shirt. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog t-shirt for your free t-shirt and 14-day trial from Datadog. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog t-shirt. Thank you, Datadog. Let's take a step back and talk some about the choices of technology that you've made. Have you considered using Snowflake for data warehousing? What was the the trade-off decision between using Snowflake and other technologies like BigQuery? Sure. So we did not start out with uh, BigQuery. The initial data warehouse was uh, Redshift that we were using. Then at some point, although I wasn't uh, directly involved in the decision, there did come a stage where we as a team thought that, you know, it is Redshift was not uh, well scaling as well as we would like it to. And at that point, we were on the lookout for new alternatives. I'm, I may not be the best person to talk about this, but I'm sure that a lot of alternatives were considered. BigQuery, Presto, Snowflake might have been among them. But in the end, for a variety of reasons, such as the ease of management, you know, and pricing and certain other aspects, uh, we decided to go with BigQuery. Yeah, that sounds like a subject for an entire show, the choices of modern data warehousing. You've written about the history of data engineering on Twitter. I know you have a pretty broad historical perspective. When you consider data engineering since the creation of Hadoop, where are the key inflection points in the history of data engineering? 
Yeah. So again, this is a very opinionated, I would say, you know, I might be very well wrong on this, but I think, you know, during the, the way I like to think about the history or the evolution of uh, modern data engineering is that it has been sort of a cyclical in the sense that we come back to, we keep going back to the, the same solutions or the same abstractions. So in, in, with respect to data engineering, I was uh, particularly alluding to the fact that how the abstraction of a table or the, the construct of a table is something which was lost at some point when Hadoop was introduced. Well, how that has slowly surfaced back again. So when I, when I say the, the abstraction of a table, what I'm talking about here is in general, the declarative language of SQL, but also the locus of execution in itself. You know, Hadoop, or when it was originally designed and still, you know, has its locus of execution to be a file. And then, you know, users were supposed to uh, write these MapReduce jobs, which were, uh, well, which was pretty technical and not really accessible for, for somebody higher up or like, you know, in, in the value chain. So these two aspects somehow, like at some point, uh, people realize that we need to go back to SQL, maybe provide, uh, that is an interface which many users would find more accessible. And, you know, in that context, I have written about how Scoop or Pig and Hive were like, you know, step forward in that direction, the reintroduction of SQL in the Hadoop ecosystem and the reintroduction of table as such. And, you know, all the way through the present day era when, you know, within Spark, like, you know, Spark SQL is also, of course, a step in that direction. And then you have the current stage where like, there are new table constructs coming up on top of such processing frameworks such as Apache Iceberg or Databricks Delta and others. Yeah. And I'm just preparing for a show about Presto right now. And from what I understand, Presto is basically a system of like, give it SQL and it sorts through your legacy technologies and figures out how to satisfy your SQL query on top of files. Right. I mean, yeah, it does seem to be the direction in which we are. I mean, it's not a bad direction to be in, but yeah, that seems to be the direction which, in which uh, the domain is headed. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff we could discuss. I know we're, we're nearing the end of our time. I guess just a, f- a few random uh, contextual questions, because it seems like you follow this broad area of data engineering um, pretty closely. The separation of ideas between a data warehouse and a data lake. From what I can tell, there are industry attempts to unify those two things, maybe not actually unifying them, but at least providing abstractions that make it seem like your data warehouse and your data lake are the same thing. Like when I did a show about Snowflake, it seemed like that's what they were trying to do. Do you have a sense of of what it takes to make the data warehouse and the data lake feel like two seamless abstractions? Sure. So my feeling about this is the entire reason for, you know, the existence of two separate notions of uh, data lake and data warehouse that stems from the fact that, you know, we have the the current way in which uh, data engineering uh, systems are built is this uh, federated way of, uh, you know, stitching together 
processing technologies or processing frameworks and storage frameworks. And, you know, the, you need a specialized team to kind of stitch them together or kind of coerce them together because it, it does not come easily. It, you need, a, like, you know, it takes some degree of expertise to do that. I think uh, Snowflake somehow, I mean, I, I do not know much about uh, the Snowflake architecture, but, uh, you know, I would say the Snowflake is kind of trying to address that need of uh, not having to stitch together these disparate systems or coerce them together into a system which works for the user. And having said that, in the current scenario, the distinction between uh, data lake and data warehouse is also moving towards a more, well, you know, I would say the primary difference would, between them would be, you know, to what degree of modeling or what degree of curation does the data have? You know, data lake is cons is more of a staging area, if you will, a docking area for all the data of the organization to flow into. And then data warehouse is mostly a curation or, you know, selection of data, of clean data into something which is more useful for the end user. Well said. I know that you are concerned right now with the idea of data quality and ensuring data quality throughout an organization is really hard. One example of why it's hard is you have different teams throughout an organization that are writing data to perhaps the same data lake with different ideas of what different terms might mean. So for example, if I write data to my data lake, and I'm using the word account or the word currency, I might have different ideas for what I mean by those terms than you do. And if there's some data scientist that's trying to do a join between data sets that are created by different teams, they can run into problems with data quality. Uh, now, that's just one example of a data quality issue. There are many others. But I see this as a, as a huge problem. Tell me about your process of improving data quality at NewBank. Sure. So the one problem that you mentioned now, that is certainly a big issue, that how do, how do we maintain or how do we you know, make sure that a certain column has the certain meaning and that meaning is known to every uh, downstream user who relies on that. So we, we as a organization, we have uh, taken a multi-pronged approach to addressing this, I would say. So, I mean, this problem also ties closely to data discovery uh, in the sense that, you know, how do there is this given data set or like, you know, you need a particular data set, you do not know how to find it, or you already have access to the data set, but you are not clear of the meaning of it. So, like I said, we have a multi-pronged approach to it. One of the approach is to, for a core team, a central team, which uh, works really close to the data infrastructure team, to kind of curate certain core canonical data sets and, you know, to mark them as like, you know, this is what, you know, to document them as like, this is what this data set pertains to, this is what the columns mean, etc. Another approach is, of course, to build a automated service on top, which, you know, aids data discovery, which really 
which uh, helps with users understand you know their data on top of it you know another another concern that you know when I, when i said i work with uh, data quality is also about you know pushing the responsibility of monitoring or like you know being responsible for their data sets to the owners of the data set what i mean by that is you know as a data infrastructure team we and you know with there are like tens of thousands of data sets which are computed as ops in our data platform every day it is really hard for a data infrastructure team to be you know cognizant of uh, what what kind of anomalies are flowing through them what like you know is this uh, is today's run anomalous in some sense so you know what we are trying to do is also to kind of push uh, or like you know give more power to the the owners of the data set in saying that okay these are my expectations of this data it's supposed to take this certain shape this column is never supposed to be null or like you know this is supposed to be an account id so in that sense i'm alluding to a lot of different things here but in general what we are working towards is also to kind of give more power to the user to monitor their data set set expectations for them so that you know downstream users of that data set can rely on these data sets in a sense i would tie it to how a devops uh, team would work in the sense of platform infrastructure team would work that a platform team provides abstractions to other engineers in the organization to spin up their services and to reliably monitor them so that you know they are they stick to their slas in that same sense if you were to think of a data set as a service the data set owners should be able to like you know guarantee certain slas on their data set so that downstream consumers of that data set can reliably use them i think you're really touching on something that is only going to grow in importance in the near future i think people are afraid to build data applications when they don't have a strong belief in the integrity of the data sets and it's it's hard to have faith in the integrity of the data sets when you know how many different people are writing to the data lake and how many different heterogeneous data sets are being combined and are they all being updated at the same time is something out of date and you know if we're just building machine learning models that sort of you know paper over the inconsistencies in our data uh, maybe that's okay in some cases but in other cases like you really need data integrity and if you don't have somebody that's looking up and down the data pipeline to ensure that data integrity it's very unlikely you will have it correct so in general the the best way to kind of ensure data integrity is for to assign certain ownership of the data to a certain team and then you know make sure the team or individual really sticks so like i said earlier you know if it's important that we treat a data set as something more than just a lump of data and more as a service wherein you are guaranteeing certain service level 
agreements to downstream users. And you know, if and if you're not keeping up with that kind of SLAs or integrity, then downstream consumers know that you know they need they should not rely on this data and maybe should rely on some other sources of data within the organization. Okay. Well, I know we're over time. I just want to ask you one last question. You know, I did a series of shows on these different challenger banks, including Nubank. I talked to the CTO, I think, a, a couple of years ago. And it's really amazing how much more value there is in financial data when you're building a bank from the ground up with new technologies, with cloud technologies, and, you know, better open source tools compared to the old school banks. And as somebody who is inside one of these newer banks, I'd just like to get your perspective. Like, what do you think banking is going to look like in five or 10 years? What can we expect as consumers in the future of banking? As somebody who's not much in touch with the business side of things, I would still have a very outsider view on things, I would say. But still, do in the end, I, I would say it is about giving more power to the customer. I mean, the current archaic traditional banks work is that there is no transparency to the way your data is used, to how it is processed, how it is being used for you or against you. I mean, in the future, uh, you know, as uh, as the banking industry matures, I, I would hope to, and this could be wishful thinking, that, you know, we have more transparent, more open systems where, like, you know, at least with regards to data, we know for a particular customer how it is being used for you and what uh, how does it affect the service that the bank provides you. That is my hope for the future. But like I said, you should take this with a grain of salt. So, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. You probably do not enjoy searching for a job. Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies, including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. At triplebyte.com sedaily, you can start your process by taking a quiz, and after the quiz, you get interviewed by TripleByte if you pass that quiz. And if you pass that interview, you make it straight to multiple on-site interviews. And if you take a job, you get an additional $1,000 signing bonus from TripleByte because you use the link triplebyte.com slash sedaily. That $1,000 is nice, but you might be making much more since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. TripleByte does not look at candidates' backgrounds, like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. 
Triplebyte only cares about whether someone can code. So I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily and take a quiz to get started. There's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a Triplebyte interview. Go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily to try it out. Thank you to Triplebyte. Triplebyte. 